So on this day when 179 of us will take the gospel to the streets, knocking on 1,343 doors, I thought appropriate for us to talk about the topic of intentional evangelism. Intentional evangelism can be defined as a concerted effort to engage the unbeliever in a conversation that is both culturally sensitive and Christologically saturated. Perhaps there's no better example of intentional evangelism than the one found in Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. I invite you to take a Bible and turn there. And once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Acts chapter 17, I'll begin reading at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples built by hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needs anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man He made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design or skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus. Also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. 
May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding and the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. When the apostle Paul arrived in Athens, he came not as a sightseer, but as a soul winner. Paul was in the middle of his second missionary journey. He'd already been to leading cities like Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. Nearly every town Paul entered, he was asked to exit. He pretty much was escorted out of town nearly every place he went simply because he communicated the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you study the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul, you have to come to the conclusion that the gospel received mixed reviews. Some people received it, some people rejected it. And those who received it, received it adamantly. And those who rejected it, reject it vehemently. And what's true in that day is also true today. The gospel has always received mixed reviews. When you and I take the gospel this afternoon to the streets of Pelham, I promise you that this gospel will receive mixed reviews. We'll have some conversations and people will receive salvation other people will reject the offer of salvation but what's true of Paul is also true of us when people receive the gospel they are not receiving you they are receiving Jesus therefore the opposite must also be true that when people reject the gospel they are not rejecting you they are rejecting Jesus this gospel that we present it always gets a mixed review. Every place the apostle went, there were some that received, there were others that rejected. And Paul had gone to Athens to wait for two of his friends, Silas and Timothy. He's there in this leading city of Athens. Athens was known for its philosophy and art and literature and its religious life. At the time of Paul, there were more than 30,000 known Greek god and goddesses of mythology. Athens was a home to many of them. The Acropolis was a high point of the city of Athens. The Acropolis was a place that housed Zeus and Vulcan and Nike, just to name a few. When you and I think of ancient Athens and ancient Greece... We not only think of the place being rich in Greek mythology, but we also think of philosophers. People like Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, they seem to come to mind. There was one Greek comic who said this of Athens. There are more gods and goddesses in Athens than there are people. Because on every street corner, there was a temple or a shrine or an altar that was built to some Greek god or goddess of mythology. And the gods, well, while they were believed to be beyond human, they acted pretty much like humans. They threw temper tantrums. They held grudges. They engaged in promiscuous activity. When the apostle Paul arrived in Athens, he walked up and down the street seeing all of these idols, shrines, temples, altars. They were constructed to numerous false gods and goddesses of the culture. And Luke tells us that he was greatly distressed to see a city so full of idols. 
That word that's translated greatly distressed literally means provoked to anger. There was something inside of him that brought him to a boiling point. There was something inside the apostle that made him extremely angry. And that anger was justifiable. That anger could have made him paralyzed to do nothing. That anger could have reduced him down to a cultural critic where he just blasted everything in the Athenian society. But instead of paralyzing him or instead of making him a cultural critic, it prompted him to do intentional evangelism. It prompted him to engage the culture. I am always impressed and inspired by the adaptability of Paul. It it impresses me and it inspires me because I don't always resemble this. The Apostle Paul not only reasoned in the synagogue with Jews and God-fearing Greeks, in other words, talking to people that were pretty much just like him, but he also took the gospel into the marketplace. And in the marketplace, he bumped into people that were drastically different than him. They had different worldviews, they had different lifestyles, they had different politics, they had different likes and dislikes. They were completely different. The only thing they had in common is that they were made in the image of God, just like Paul. And for Paul, that was enough. It was enough to say and to see that that person that may be yelling at me and screaming at me and spitting on me, that person is made in the image of God. That individual bears the Imago Dei. That person bears the same image that I bear. And it prompted him not just to associate like we do, birds of a feather flock together, Because most of us are only comfortable around people that are pretty much like us. We don't like to get involved with other people that are drastically different than us. In fact, we use the terminology, us and them. And we describe them as people who are different than us. And you can define different in any way that you want to. But for most of us, when it comes to being intentional in evangelism, we would be more eager To speak to somebody that kind of looks like us versus somebody that we confront that is drastically different than us. I'm inspired. I'm impressed with the adaptability of the Apostle Paul. He not only goes into the marketplace, not, not only goes into the synagogue, but he also goes into the marketplace. Text says every day he reasoned. In the synagogue, in the marketplace, to people that were like him and not like him. When he went to the marketplace, he bumped into Epicureans and Stoics. These are the two leading schools of philosophy in Athens. They are as different as night and day, even though both of them are extremely pagan. But an Epicurean was not a Stoic, and a Stoic wasn't an Epicurean. An Epicurean was a secular atheist. An Epicurean didn't really believe in God. And all of these 30,000 gods and goddesses of Greek mythology, that really didn't impress them very much. They, they did not really believe in the afterlife. They did not believe in gods and goddesses. They gave themselves to reason. They gave themselves to the, to the reality that in the moment is all you've got. So it's the Epicureans who said, eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you die. 
All you've got is now. All you've got is today. Live in the moment. This is it. You make your best life now, Epicureans. Friends, when you take the gospel to the streets here in Pelham today, you're going to bump into some Epicureans. They're not going to call themselves Epicureans, but by all vantage point, they are secular atheists. If they don't profess to be an atheist, they will live life as if God doesn't exist. Therefore, they're a practicing atheist. You'll bump into many people that will think and say to themselves and maybe even to you on their doorstep, listen, I don't believe in all that religious stuff. I don't really believe in the afterlife. It's pretty much what I can do right now. Eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we're going to die. You may today just bump into some Epicureans. You also may bump into some Stoics. Now, a Stoic is drastically different than an Epicurean. An Epicurean says, there is no God. What's the opposite of that? A Stoic. A Stoic is a pantheist. A Stoic would say, everything is God. The sun, the moon, the rock, the trees, the building, you, me, all we're all God. We're all part of God. And so a Stoic would believe that everything seen and unseen is God. And it ought to be worshipped. And so the fact that we have 30,000 idols here in this town is a great thing, according to the Stoics. Oh, but the Stoics, they also gave themselves to reason and to logic. And a Stoic wanted uh, to be unattached from the emotional. An Epicurean, an Epicurean said that the highest goal of life is hedonism. It is self-pleasure. A Stoic said, we need to live life unattached from emotions. And even today, when somebody is unexpressive in their face, what do we say of them? They are so Stoic, right? Unattached, unmoved by their emotions. That goes all the way back to ancient Greece. It goes all the way back to here, what Paul is is engaging. So in the marketplace, he is bumping into Epicureans who said there is no God. He's bumping into Stoics who say God's everywhere. And, and, And he is communicating the gospel. He's culturally sensitive. He's Christologically saturated. You know that his conversation is Christologically saturated because he speaks of the resurrection of Christ. And so the Epicureans and the Stoics, they resorted to name-calling, which by and large, that's what people do. If they don't know how to engage you in conversation, they will just call you a name. I mean, we do it too, right? I mean, somebody who doesn't agree with you, eventually you'll call them an idiot or stupid or whatever, and you'll begin to name-call them. Here, the Epics and the Stoics, they called Paul a babbler. A babbler. What is that? It's the image of a bird that is picking seeds out of the gutter. That's a babbler. And then that bird is flying around and communicating those little nuggets of what they think is truth. But it's not really truth because where did it originate? In the gutter. And so they're going around and you and I would say, this is a know-it-all. This is a person with a gift of gab. We would also say this is a person that's full of it. I mean, that's what we would say. That's what they're saying when they say he's a babbler. He is so full of junk. He is so full of just bad ideas. He's even claiming resurrection from the dead. He's just a bird that's flittering around and flying around. He's just babbling. But the Stoics and the Epicureans, they also understood 
listen, he's talking about something that we don't have in Athens. Not that the Stoics and Epicureans would know all 30,000 gods and goddesses, but everything they had heard, everything they'd been taught, they knew that whatever this babbler was saying was something remarkably different. He was talking about a god unlike Zeus or Vulcan or Nike or any of the others. He's talking about something different. So because of that, they said, this must be a rich man who has come to town to advocate a new God and any person who comes advocating a new God, what that person really wants is permission to purchase a parcel of land to construct an altar or a temple or a shrine. This man, this bald-headed, knobby-kneed individual, this babbler, he must be rich because you can't hide wealth, but I don't, he must be rich and he must be here wanting to purchase land to build an altar to this strange God that he's talking about. So because of that, they said he needs to stand before the Areopagus. Friends, I got to be honest, every time I hear that word Areopagus, I, I, think of, I think of a cartoon animal on a children's show. Here comes Mr. Areopagus, right? I mean, it just kind of sounds like an animal, right? It sounds like a big fluffy animal that's going to come out. But the Areopagus was not an animal. In fact, it was a council of 30 governors, and Areopagus was the place where they would meet. And they made decisions that were civil and criminal and religious. So if anybody needed to come and purchase some land to, to uh, build up a temple, they would have to appear before the Areopagus. And this council would give them permission or not permission, give them protection or no protection for their endeavor. So the Apostle Paul has to stand before this impressive, intimidating 30-member council called the Areopagus. Areopagus literally means the hill of Ares. Ares was the Greek god of war. It was believed that Ares was brought to this specific hill and tried for war crimes in Greek mythology. It also should be noted that, that on that hill, that's where uh, the war was waged for ideas. Luke tells us uh, that they just sat around and talked about ideas all day long. I mean, it's a, it's a nonstop, ongoing uh, radio talk show. That's all that it is. Just, just, just babbling about ideas all day long. And so they would go to the hill of Ares, the Areopagus. What's also interesting, and you, some of you may find worthy of note, is that the Roman counterpart to Ares is Mars. So Mars in Roman mythology is the Roman god of war. And that's why some people say that when you come to Acts 17, this is Paul on Mars Hill. And so Mars Hill is the same thing as Areopagus uh, because Mars and Ares were the counterparts of the Greek and Roman gods of war. So Paul is there. He is standing in front of the architects of secular liberalism. He is standing in front of Epicureans and Stoics He's seated and standing in front of people uh, that are the leading philosophers of his day. If you were in his sandals, what would you say? Would you say anything? What would you do? How would you conduct yourself? 
If you gained this audience, what would you say? His approach is brilliant. His conversation is culturally sensitive and it is Christologically saturated. Men of Athens, I see that you are very religious. As I walk up and down the streets of your great city, I have noticed that there is even an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What you worship is unknown. I would like to make known to you today. In just a few statements, the Apostle Paul found common ground. At least it could be stated that both Paul and the people he was speaking to were religious in nature. Now, they may have different religious beliefs, as different as night and day, but at least they had a common ground of religious life and they regarded religion as something that was important. And in a few statements, he diffused and disarmed a very anxious crowd. He had cultural sensitivity. He knew a story that was 600 years old. 600 years before the apostle Paul made his way to Athens, there was a plague. And this plague uh, killed thousands of Athenians. At that time, they did not know which Greek god or goddess was responsible for this plague. So in an effort to appease all of them, They just simply released a flock of sheep. And wherever each individual sheep laid down, the people of Athens would go and slaughter that sheep in the name of the closest temple, shrine, or idol of a god or goddess. If some of those sheep went far away, if some of them went on the outskirts of town or went to a place where there was not an existing idol, And if those sheep would actually lay down and there was nothing around it, there was no temple, there was no shrine, there was nothing around it, then the people of Athens would build an altar, they would sacrifice that sheep, and they would label it to an unknown God. So actually in the city of Athens, there were numerous idols that were labeled to an unknown God. And now the apostle Paul is standing there and he's saying, I'm going to answer a 600-year-old question. I'm going to answer a question that you have been having for 600 years. You've been wondering, who is this unknown God? What you worship is unknown. Let me make plain to you. I promise you that every person on that ruling council is on the edge of their concrete seats. They are listening intently. They are wanting to know, does this babbler actually have something to say? Can he actually give us the answer? That's a question that's 600 years old of who the unknown God is. And so in a moment, of being culturally sensitive, he captured the attention so that the people of the Areopagus, and not just the council, but all those that stood around on the outskirts just listening, they were all eager to hear. What's he going to say? So Paul began not only to be culturally sensitive, but also Christologically saturated. This God that I'm talking about, Paul says, this God cannot be housed in a temple made with human hands. For the God that's the unknown God, he's the maker of everything. And in him, we have life and breath and movement and all things. In this God. Do you realize that what Paul is doing is he is beginning to build the case 
for the one true sovereign God of the universe that we understand is the Trinitarian God of Father, Son, and Spirit. He is declaring that our God is the one who created everything. Our God created all things seen and unseen, visible and invisible. It's not that we have anything that he needs, but he is everything that we need. He is the God of the universe. Friends, you do realize that if it wasn't for our God, the earth would no longer spin on its axis. The sun would forget how to shine. The birds, they would fail to sing their melodious tunes. The sky, it literally would fall. And you, you'd forget how to inhale and exhale. If it wasn't for our God, nothing that we know would be known. Because it's in him that we live and breathe and have our movements and have everything. God, in his sovereignty, saw fit that from one man, Adam, all the nations would be established. From that one man, our God made all humanity. And he set the times and the places and the locations of all peoples. Now, the people of Athens thought themselves to be superior than anybody else. And Paul is describing a God who's even greater than the Athenians. Because our God has set the time and place and location for all people. And why do he do that? In the hopes that some would reach out and seek him. Even though he's not very far from any of us. Now you know that an, an idol is constructed in the hopes of bringing a far off God close to us. That's why an idol, a shrine, a temple is made. So that a God who is aloof, a God who is far off, might be required to come near us. Paul is describing a God who cannot be housed in a temple made by human hands. And this God, who's creator of everything, this God actually wants to be close. This God wants to come near to you. In fact, he created all of this. So you could see the beauty and the majesty in the natural so that you would seek him. That word seek, it literally means to grope in darkness. It's a blind man who is groping in the darkness, seeking, reaching for something that's needed. And Paul says, listen, as I walk up and down the streets, I see spiritually blind individuals. Guess what? When we go up and down the streets of Pelham, we're going to find spiritually blind individuals. They're going to be groping in darkness. And Paul says, God made all of this so that you just might seek him and reach out for him. He's not that far from any of us. All the people are on the edge of their seats. You mean to tell us that there is one God? You mean to tell us that this one God who made everything has made himself known? You mean to tell us that this one God who's made everything and made himself known is close to us? That he's not that far from any of us? That any of us could possibly reach out and engage him in conversation and relationship? What's the embedded question? How can you reach out and take hold of him? And Paul's answer, nothing short of brilliant. In the past, God ignored such things as trying to make an image of gold or 
silver or stone. But in these days, the way you reach out and take hold of this God, repent and believe on the one he raised from the dead. I love it. Regardless of whether the apostle Peter is speaking on the day of Pentecost or Philip is chasing down a chariot on the Gaza road or, 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 or Paul is standing on Mars Hill, it does not matter. The formula for salvation is always the same. Repent and believe upon the one he raised from the dead. That's how anybody is saved. That's how anybody reaches out and grabs hold of God. This God who is not too far from us. This God who's created all things. This God who has made himself known. And Paul says there's coming a day when God will judge with justice the world. And he's appointed the one who will do it. And he's greater than Zeus. The one who will do it is this one that he has raised from the dead. His conversation Christologically saturated. And what happens when the babbler starts talking about the resurrection? Some laugh. Some question. Some believe. We are told that Dionysius believed. You say, well, who's that? It's just another weird name. Dionysius was one of the 30 governors, one of the council members of the Areopagus. And he believed. We're also told that Damaris believed and she was a woman and then there were many others. Paul's conversation was culturally sensitive and Christologically saturated. Friend, that's the only way to share the gospel. That's the only way to share the good news of Jesus. You can't lean too far one way or the other. You can't be so culturally sensitive that you never talk about the good gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus, who was God in the flesh, died on the cross for your sins and mine. He was placed in a borrowed grave. And on the third day, he was raised from the dead. You could be so culturally sensitive that you never talk about the cross and the empty tomb. The flip side is also true. You could be so dogmatic about the cross and the empty tomb and burst through the front door with no cultural sensitivity then nobody's going to listen to you. So Paul seemed to balance that. He seemed to strike that balance of cultural sensitivity and also Christological saturation. It was John Stott who simply said this, Christianity at its core is a resurrection religion. If you remove the resurrection from Christianity, Christianity is destroyed. So if you're an ambassador of the king, if you're an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ, you must talk about the resurrection. You cannot strip it. You cannot remove it. You cannot remove the resurrection from Christianity. If you attempt to do that, you no longer have Christianity. John Stott's exactly right. At the core, this is a resurrection religion. All of our hope is pinned on the reality that Jesus was raised from the dead. And so Paul left the council. Some laughed at him, made fun of him. Others believed in the Jesus of his gospel. Let me quickly give you two takeaways. Remember this today as you go out and share the gospel. But I realize we only have 179 people that are going out to share the gospel. So there are more than 179 people listening to my voice even right now. So for those of you who could not, cannot 
uh, go out on the streets today, keep these two things in mind as you engage people in the church and in the marketplace, today and every day, all right? The first is this, be culturally sensitive to individuals groping in darkness. The culture of Athens is not that different than our culture. Idols everywhere. You know, it is infinitely easier to identify the idols of another culture versus the idols of your own culture. It is infinitely easier to identify the idols in somebody else's life versus the idols in your own life. But we live in a culture that has numerous idols. The American idols include power and wealth and sex and tolerance. Our, our idols take the form of an elephant and an eagle. Why? Because it just means more, right? That's, I mean, we, we, we worship the sports that we uh, look at every Saturday. Our idols are parked in the driveway. Our idols are, are uh, docked by the lake. Our idols are enframed on the mantle of our homes and on our desks and on our walls. We don't think of any of this as idols. We think of it as forms of entertainment. We, we think of it as, you know, just things that we enjoy, people that we enjoy, places that we enjoy. Friend, an idol is anything that takes your attention, your affection, your allegiance away from the Lord. That's an idol. It's anything, anything that takes your attention or your affection or your allegiance away from the Lord. We all have idols. The heart that is totally deprived is a heart depraved, is a heart that is an idol manufacturer. We just manufacture idols because we have a God vacuum and every person wants to worship something. You're going to bump into people and every person you bump into, they're going, to, they're going to long to worship something. It may be themselves, it may be their children, it may be their goals, their dreams, it may be their football, it may be their politics, it may be their job, it may be the American dream. They're going to worship something. And today we're just going to try to show them who the unknown God is. We're going to try to make plain that which they think is unknown. You're going to encounter a bunch of idols today. And when you get distressed, do not become so angry that it paralyzes you from sharing the gospel. And do not become so angry that it causes you just to be a cultural critic. Listen, we have enough angry preachers, we don't need another one. We have enough angry Christians, we don't need any more. We have enough angry churches, we don't need any other angry churches. There are enough of those in the American society, so we need to be culturally sensitive to people that are groping in darkness. The gospel's offensive enough. Your anger doesn't need to be added fuel to the fire to it. So be culturally sensitive today and every day. Culturally sensitive people, literally, that are groping in darkness because they share the Imago Dei just like you. Second, in your conversation, be Christologically saturated. God has given you lips so that you will praise him and talk about Jesus. That's why you have the capacity to speak. And let's be honest, uh, we speak a lot of words. Ladies, on average, you speak 20,000 words a day. 
Men, on average, you speak 7,000 words a day. I don't mention that for a gender war to break out. I don't mention that for elbows to start flying. I mention it for the mere fact that even 7,000 words are a lot of words to speak in a day. And some of y'all speak a lot more than 7,000 words, all right? And all I'm saying is when you take an inventory of the words you speak, how often is your conversation Christologically saturated? We talk about sports. We talk about politics, we talk about shopping, we talk about our spouses, we talk about our children and our grandchildren, we talk about our family and our finances, we talk about vacations, we talk about business deals, we talk about a host of things. How often is our conversation Christologically saturated? Today and every day, let your conversation be Christologically saturated. When you say, Pastor, what do you mean by that? The Christological saturation of a conversation has to be at some point, you share the gospel with words. Jesus, the God-man, died on the cross for your sins and mine. He was placed into a tomb, but he did not stay there. For on the third day, he was raised from the dead. And anyone who believes upon the resurrected Christ will go from no faith to faith. At some point, we have to be verbal with the resurrection of Christ. I realize that people say, you know what? I'm just gonna witness with my lifestyle. I get that. Uh, I'm just gonna witness uh, in the absence of my words. I get that some people wanna do that, but at, at some point, at the end of the day, you've gotta use these lips to have a conversation that is Christologically saturated. Paul spoke the gospel. Dionysius became a believer. Damaris became a believer. You know what that means? That means that Jesus is the Christ for both men and women, rich and poor, educated and uneducated. We don't know much of anything about the woman named Damaris. We don't know much of any of her story. But church historians do know something about Dionysius. You know who he was? Dionysius was the first bishop of Athens. According to church history, his ministry brought thousands of people to Christ. And I wonder, had Paul been paralyzed with fear? Had Paul simply just uh, said, you know what, I, I'm just going to be reduced to a cultural critic. Had Paul done something like that, um, I wonder if Dionysius would have come to faith in Jesus Christ. I also wonder this, when you knock on a door today, I wonder if you're going to find any Dionysius or Damaris on the other end of that door. Somebody who accepts Christ and because you took the time to go and share the gospel, because of what you did, then they're going to have a fruitful ministry that's going to lead hundreds and hundreds, thousands of thousands of people to faith in Jesus Christ. And you won't see the full effect of that this side of heaven. I, I, I just have a holy hunch that I think that can happen today. So here's the invitation. The invitation is, um, if you are here and you've never repented and believed upon the resurrected Christ, today is the day for you to be saved. Today is the day for you to repent of sin. For you to say, Lord, I acknowledge that my sin is uh, a grievous act against you and I want to turn away from my sin and turn towards the Savior and I believe that Jesus died in my place as my substitute and that he was placed in a grave and on the third day was raised from there. Friend, if you're here and you've never placed explicit faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, today is the day of your salvation. The moment we sing the first note, I want you to come down, take one of the ministers by the hand and say, I need this Jesus for I repent and I believe. If you're here today and you've never accepted Christ, please do that today.
If you're here today and you're part of the 179 and you are scared to death, you think to yourself, I am so petrified. I don't know what I'm going to experience as I knock on that door. Friend, you just come down here and pray and just say, God, help me to have two things. Number one, help me to be culturally sensitive to the people that I meet groping in darkness and help me to be Christologically saturated in my conversation. And maybe you're not part of the 179 that are going out today, but you know what you can do? You can pray for this day, this experience, and for this to happen over and over and over again. So maybe you're here and you want to come and just pray. Pray for people. Pray for people that you know or don't know. Regardless, I'm asking every believer today to make a commitment that this week you will have at least one gospel conversation. Can you make that commitment today? All right, the jury's still out, but that's all right. I'm going to ask you to make that commitment today. And it's just between you and the Lord, okay? But you make that commitment where you say, God, this week I, I commit to you that I'm going to have at least one gospel conversation. Let me let you on a little hint. If you're going out today as part of the 179, you're probably going to have at least one gospel conversation today. But you make a promise to God, God, this week, I'm going to have a gospel conversation and I'm going to do my best to be culturally sensitive and to be Christologically saturated in my conversation. Why do we do this? Why do we do this? We do it because Christ has saved us. And we know the only way for a person to be saved is through faith in Jesus Christ. And if we don't tell them, who will? And if you're anything like me, you always struggle with a very bad case of King Helpitz. You just can't help but to speak. Why? Because you've heard too much and you've seen too much. God has been too good to you. He's been so good to you that woe to you if you sit on your keister and don't do anything because God says, I want you to get up and go out and I want you to share the good news of the gospel and I want you to do it because you cannot be quiet. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will help us to have the appropriate response today. For those who are not believers, I pray that they will seriously uh, give themselves to Christ in this moment. Oh, Father, I pray for those missionaries that are going out today. Bless our efforts. I pray for those of us who cannot go, but Lord, please help our prayers just to anoint uh, and to go forward. And Father, help all of us to make a promise unto you today that we will have a gospel conversation with somebody this week. Why? Because we cannot be quiet because you're so good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.